Chapter Ten of the Pit Prop Syndicate by Freeman Wills Crofts. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten: Merriman becomes desperate. The failure of the attempt to learn the secret of the Pit Prop Syndicate affected Merriman more than he could have believed possible. His interest in the affair was not that of Hilliard. Neither the intellectual joy of solving a difficult problem for its own sake, nor the kudos which such a solution might bring, made much appeal to him. His concern was simply the happiness of the girl he loved, and though, to do him justice, he did not think over much of himself, he recognized that any barrier raised between them was the end for him of all that made life endurable. As he lay back with eyes closed in the corner seat of a first-class compartment in the boat train from Calais, he went over for the thousandth time the details of the problem as it affected himself. Had Mr. Coburn rendered himself liable to arrest, or even to penal servitude, and did his daughter know it? The anxious, troubled look which Merriman had on different occasions surprised on the girl's expressive face made him fear both these possibilities. But if they were true, did it stop there? Was her disquietude due merely to knowledge of her father's danger, or was she herself in peril also? Merriman wondered, could she have such knowledge and not be in peril herself? In the eyes of the law, would it not be a guilty knowledge? Could she not be convicted as an accessory? If it were so, he must act at once if he were to save her. But how? He writhed under the terrible feeling of impotence produced by his ignorance of the syndicate's real business. If he were to help Madeline, he must know what the conspirators were doing. And he had failed to learn. He had failed, and Hilliard had failed, and neither they nor Latham had been able to suggest any method by which the truth might be ascertained. There was, of course, the changing of the number plates. A trained detective would no doubt be able to make something of that. But Merriman felt that without even the assistance of Hilliard, he had neither the desire nor the ability to tackle it. He pondered the question, as he had pondered it for weeks, and the more he thought, the more he felt himself driven to the direct course. To see Madeline, put the problem to her, ask her to marry him, and come out of it all. But there were terrible objections to this plan, not the least of which was that if he made a blunder, it might be irrevocable. She might not hear him at all. She might be displeased by his suggestion that she and her father were in danger from such a cause. She might decide not to leave her father for the very reason that he was in danger. And all these possibilities were, of course, in addition to the much more probable one that she would simply refuse him because she did not care about him. Merriman did not see his way clearly, and he was troubled. Once he had made up his mind, he was not easily turned from his purpose, but he was slow in making it up. In this case, where so much depended on his decision, he found his doubt actually painful. Mechanically he alighted at the Gare du Nord, crossed Paris, and took his place in the Southern Express at the Quai d'Orsay. Here he continued wrestling with his problem, and it was not until he was near his destination that he arrived at a decision. He would not bother about further investigations. 
he would go out and see Madeline, tell her everything, and put his fate into her hands. He alighted at the Bastide station in Bordeaux, and driving across the city, put up at the Gironde Hotel. There he slept the night, and next day after lunch he took a taxi to the clearing. Leaving the vehicle on the main road, he continued on foot down the lane and past the depot until he reached the manager's house. The door was opened by Miss Coburn in person. On seeing her visitor, she stood for a moment quite motionless while a look of dismay appeared in her eyes, and a hot flush rose on her face and then faded, leaving it white and drawn. "'Oh!' she gasped faintly. "'It's you!' She still stood holding the door, as if overcome by some benumbing emotion. Merriman had pulled off his hat. "'It is I, Miss Coburn,' he answered gently. "'I have come over from London to see you. May I not come in?' She stepped back. "'Come in, of course,' she said, making an obvious effort to infuse cordiality into her tone. "'Come in here.' He fumbled with his coat in the hall, and by the time he followed her into the drawing-room she had recovered her composure. She began rather breathlessly to talk commonplaces. At first he answered in the same strain, but directly he made a serious attempt to turn the conversation to the subject of his call, she adroitly interrupted him. "'You'll have some tea,' she said presently, getting up and moving towards the door. "'Er, no. No thanks, Miss Coburn. Not any. I wanted, really.' "'But I want some tea,' she persisted, smiling. "'Come, you may help me to get it ready, but you must have some to keep me company.' He had perforce to obey, and during the tea-making she effectually prevented any serious discussion. But when the meal was over, and they had once more settled down in the drawing-room, he would no longer be denied. "'Forgive me,' he entreated. "'Forgive me for bothering you, but it's so desperately important to me. And we may be interrupted. Do hear what I've got to say.' Without waiting for permission, he plunged into the subject, speaking hoarsely, stammering, contradicting himself, boggling over the words, he yet made himself clear. He loved her, had loved her from that first day they had met, he loved her more than anything else in the world, he—she covered her face with her hands. "'Oh!' she cried wildly, "'don't go on, don't say it!' She made a despairing gesture. "'I can't listen. I tried to stop you.' Merriman felt as if a cold weight was slowly descending upon his heart. "'But I will speak,' he cried hoarsely. "'It's my life that's at stake. Don't tell me you can't listen, Madeline. I love you. I want you to marry me. Say you'll marry me. Madeline, say it.' He dropped on his knees before her and seized her hands in his own. "'My darling,' he whispered fiercely, "'I love you enough for us both. Say you'll marry me. Say—' She wrenched her hands from him. Oh, she cried as if heartbroken, and burst into an uncontrollable flood of tears. Merriman was maddened beyond endurance by the sight. What a brute I am, he gasped. Now I've made you cry. For pity's sake, do stop it. Nothing matters about anything else if only you stop. He was almost beside himself with misery as he pleaded with her but soon he pulled himself together and began to speak more rationally. "'At least tell me the reason,' he besought. "'I know I've no right to ask, but it matters so much. Have pity and tell me. Is it someone else?' She shook her head faintly between her sobs. "'Thank goodness for that, anyway. Tell me once again. 
is it that you don't like me again she shook her head you do like me he exclaimed breathlessly you do madeline say it say that you do she made a resolute effort for self-control you know i do but she began in a tremulous whisper in a paroxysm of overwhelming excitement he interrupted her madeline he cried wildly again seizing her hands you don't it couldn't be possible that you that you love me this time she did not withdraw her hands slowly she raised her eyes to his and in them he read his answer in a moment she was in his arms and he was crushing her to his heart for a breathless space she lay a happy little smile on her lips and then the moment passed oh she cried struggling to release herself what have i done let me go i shouldn't have darling he breathed triumphantly i'll never let you go as long as i live you love me what else matters no no she cried again her tears once more flowing i was wrong i shouldn't have allowed you it can never be he laughed savagely never be he repeated why dear one it is i'd like to know the person or thing that could stop it now it can never be she repeated in a voice of despair you don't understand there are obstacles she argued he scoffed at first then he pleaded he demanded to be told the nature of the barrier then he besought but all to no purpose she would say no more than that it could never be and then suddenly the question of the syndicate flashed into his mind and he sat almost gasping with wonder as he realized that he had entirely forgotten it he had forgotten this mysterious business which had occupied his thoughts to the exclusion of almost all else for the past two months it seemed to him incredible yet so it was there surged over him a feeling of relief so that once more he all but laughed he turned to madeline i know he cried triumphantly the obstacle and it's just nothing at all it's this syndicate business that your father has got mixed up in now tell me isn't that it the effect of his words on the girl was instantaneous she started and then sat quite still while the color slowly drained from her face leaving it bleached and death-like a look of fear and horror grew in her eyes and her fingers clasped until the knuckles showed white oh she stammered brokenly what do you mean by that merriman tried once more to take her hand dear one he said caressingly don't let what i said distress you we know the syndicate is carrying on something that well perhaps wouldn't bear too close investigation but that has nothing to do with us it won't affect our relations the girl seemed transfixed with horror we know she repeated dully who are we why hilliard hilliard and i we found out quite by accident that there was something secret going on we were both interested hilliard had some mania for puzzles and besides he thought he might get some kudos if the business was illegal and he could bring it to light well i knew that because of mr coburn's connection with it the matter might affect you yes she seemed hardly able to frame the syllable between her dry lips merriman was profoundly unhappy he felt it was out of the question for him to tell her anything but the exact truth 
whether she would consider he had acted improperly in spying on the syndicate he did not know but even at the risk of destroying his own chance of happiness he could not deceive her dear one he said in a low tone don't think any worse of me than you can help and i will tell you everything you remember that first day i was here when you met me in the lane and we walked to the mill she nodded you may recall that a lorry had just arrived and that i stopped and stared at it well i had noticed that the number plate had been changed ah she exclaimed i was afraid you had yes i saw it though it conveyed nothing to me but i was interested and one night in london just to make conversation in the club i mentioned what i had seen hilliard was present and he joined me on the way home and insisted on talking over the affair as i said he has a mania for puzzles and the mystery appealed to him he was going on that motor-boat tour across france and he suggested that i should join him and that we should call here on our way so as to see if we could find the solution neither of us thought then you understand that there was anything wrong he was merely interested i didn't care about the mystery but i confess i leaped at the idea of coming back in order to meet you again and on the understanding that there was to be nothing in the nature of spying i agreed to his proposal merriman paused but the girl whose eyes were fixed intently on his face made no remark and he continued while we were here hilliard who was very observant and clever saw one or two little things which excited his suspicion and without telling me he slipped on board the girondine and overheard a conversation between mr coburn captain beamish mr bulla and henri he learned at once that something serious and illegal was in progress but he did not learn what it was then there was spying she declared accusingly there was he admitted I could only say that under the circumstances he thought himself justified. Go on, she ordered shortly. We returned then to England and were kept at our offices for about a week, but Hilliard felt that we could not drop the matter and we should then become accomplices. Besides, he was interested. He proposed we should try to find out more about it. This time I agreed, but I would ask you, Madeline, to believe me when I tell you my motive and to judge me by it he spoke of reporting what he had learned to the police and if i hadn't agreed to help him he would have done so i wanted at all costs to avoid that because if there was going to be any trouble i wanted mr coburn to be out of it first believe me or not that was my only reason for agreeing i do believe you she said but finish what you have to tell me we learned from lloyd's list that the girondine put into hull we went there and at ferriby seven miles upstream we found the depot where she discharged the props you don't know it she shook her head it's quite like this place just a wharf and shed with an enclosure between the river and the railway we made all the inquiries and investigations we could think of but we learned absolutely nothing but that unfortunately is the worst of it hilliard is disgusted with our failure and appears determined to tell the police Oh cried the girl with an impatient gesture why can't he let it alone it's not his business merriman shrugged his shoulders that's what he said at all events i had the greatest difficulty in getting him to promise even to delay but he has promised and we have a month to make our plans i came straight over to tell you and to ask you to marry me at once and come away with me to england 
"'Oh, no, no, no!' she cried, putting up her hand as if to shield herself from the idea. "'Besides, what about my father?' "'I've thought about him, too,' Merriman returned. "'We will tell him the whole thing, and he will be able to get out before the crash comes.' For some moments she sat in silence. Then she asked, had Hilliard any idea of what was being done? He suggested brandy smuggling, but it was only a theory. There was nothing whatever to support it. Brandy smuggling? Oh, if only it were. Merriman stared in amazement. It wouldn't be so bad as what I had feared, the girl added, answering his look. And that was? Do trust me, Madeline. I do trust you, and I will tell you all I know. It isn't much. I was afraid they were printing and circulating false money. Merriman was genuinely surprised. False money? he repeated blankly. Yes, English treasury notes. I thought they were perhaps printing them over here and sending them to England with each trip of the Girondin. It was a remark I accidentally overheard that made me think so. But, like you, it was only a guess. I had no proof. Tell me, Merriman begged. It was last winter when the evenings closed in early. I had had a headache, and I had gone to rest for a few minutes in the next room, the dining room, which was in darkness. The door between it and this room was almost, but not quite closed. I must have fallen asleep, for I suddenly became conscious of voices in here, though I had heard no one enter. I was going to call out when a phrase arrested my attention. I did not mean to listen, but involuntarily I stayed quiet for a moment. You understand? Of course, it was the natural thing to do. Captain Beamish was speaking. He was just finishing a sentence, and I only caught the last few words. So that's a profit of six thousand seven hundred and fifty pounds, he said. Fifty pounds loss on the props, and six thousand seven hundred netted over the other. Not bad for one trip. Lord! Merriman exclaimed in amazement. No wonder you stopped. I couldn't understand what was meant, and while I sat undecided what to do, I heard my father say, No trouble planting the stuff? Captain Beamish answered, Archer said not, but then Archer is... Archer. He's planting it in small lots, ten here, twenty there, fifty in the other place. I don't think he put out more than fifty at any one time. And he says he's only learning his way round, and that he'll be able to form better connections to get rid of it. Then Mr. Bulla spoke, and this was what upset me so much and made me think. Mr. Archer is a wonderful man, he said, with that horrible fat chuckle of his. He would plant stuff on old Nick himself with the whole of the C.I.D. looking on. I was bewildered and rather horrified, and I did not wait to hear any more. I crept away noiselessly, and I didn't want to be found as if it were listening. Even then I did not understand that anything was wrong, but it happened that the very next day— I was walking through the forest near the lane, and I noticed Henri changing the numbers on the lorry. He didn't see me, and he had such a stealthy, surreptitious air that I couldn't but see it was not a joke. Putting two and two together, I felt something serious was going on, and that night I asked my father what it was. "'Well done!' Merriman exclaimed admiringly. "'But it was no use.' He made little of it at first, but when I pressed him he said that against his will he had been forced into an enterprise which he hated, and which he was trying to get out of. He said I must be patient, and we should get away from it as quickly as possible. But since then, she added despondently, 
though i have returned to the subject time after time he has always put me off saying that we must wait a little longer and then you thought of the false notes yes but i had no reason to do so except that i couldn't think of anything else that would fit the words i had overheard planting stuff by tens or twenties or fifties seemed to there was a sudden noise in the hall and madeline broke off to listen father she whispered breathlessly don't say anything merriman just had time to nod when the door opened and mr coburn appeared on the threshold for a moment he stood looking at his daughter's visitor while the emotions of doubt surprise and annoyance seemed to pass successively through his mind then he advanced with outstretched hand and a somewhat satirical smile on his lips ah it is the good merriman he exclaimed welcome once more to our humble abode and where is brother hilliard you don't mean to say you have come without him his tone jarred on merriman but he answered courteously i left him in london i had business bringing me to this neighborhood and when i reached bordeaux i took the opportunity to run out to see you and miss coburn the manager replied suitably and the conversation became general as soon as he could with civility merriman rose to go mr coburn cried out in protest but the other insisted mr coburn had become more cordial and the two men strolled together across the clearing merriman had no opportunity of further private conversation with madeline but he pressed her hand and smiled at her encouragingly on saying good-bye as the taxi bore him swiftly back towards bordeaux his mind was occupied with the girl to the exclusion of all else it was not so much that he thought definitely about her as that she seemed to fill all his consciousness he felt numb and his whole being ached for her with a dull physical pain but it was a pain that was mingled with exultation for if she had refused him she had at least admitted that she loved him incredible thought he smiled ecstatically then the sense of loss returning once more gazed gloomily ahead into vacancy as the evening wore on his thoughts turned towards what she had said about the syndicate her forged note theory had come to him as a complete surprise and he wondered whether she really had hit on the true solution of the mystery the conversation she had overheard undoubtedly pointed in that direction planting stuff was he believed the technical phrase for passing forged notes and the reference to tens twenties and fifties tended in the same direction also forming connections to get rid of it seemed to suggest the finding of agents who would take a number of notes at a time to be passed on by ones and twos no doubt for a consideration but there was the obvious difficulty that the theory did not account for the operations as a whole the elaborate mechanism of the pit prop industry was not needed to provide a means of carrying forged notes from france to england they could be secreted about the person of a traveler crossing by any of the ordinary routes hundreds of notes could be sewn into the lining of an overcoat thousands carried in the double bottom of a suitcase of course so frequent a traveller would require a plausible reason for his journeys but that would present no difficulty to men like those composing the syndicate in any case by crossing in rotation by the dozen or so well patronized routes between england and the continent the continuity of the travelling could be largely hidden moreover thought merriman why print the notes in france at all why not produce them in england and so save the need for importation on the whole there seemed but slight support for the theory and several strong arguments against it and he felt that madeline must be mistaken just as he and hilliard had been mistaken oh how sick of the whole business he was 
He no longer cared what the syndicate was doing. He never wanted to hear of it again. He wanted Madeline, and he wanted nothing else. His thoughts swung back to her as he had seen her that afternoon. Her trim figure, her daintiness, her brown eyes clouded with trouble, her little shell-like ears escaping from the tendrils of her hair, her tears. He broke out once more into a cold sweat as he thought of those tears. Presently he began wondering what his own next step should be, and he soon decided he must see her again with as little delay as possible. The next afternoon, therefore, he once more presented himself at the house in the clearing. This time the door was opened by an elderly servant who handed him a note and informed her that Mr. and Miss Coburn had left home for some days. Bitterly disappointed, he turned away, and in the solitude of the lane he opened the note. It read, Friday. Dear Mr. Merriman, I feel it is quite impossible that we should part without a word more than could be said at our interrupted interview this afternoon. So with deep sorrow I am writing to you to say to you, Dear Mr. Merriman, good-bye. I have enjoyed our short friendship, and all my life I shall be proud that you spoke as you did. But, my dear, it is just because I think so much of you that I could not bring your life under the terrible cloud that hangs over mine. Though it hurts me to say it, I have no option but to ask you to accept the answer I gave you as final, and to forget that we met. I am leaving home for some time, and I beg of you not to give both of us more pain by trying to follow me. Oh, my dear, I cannot say how grieved I am. Your sincere friend, Madeline Coburn. Merriman was overwhelmed utterly by the blow. Mechanically he regained the taxi, where he lay limply back, gripping the note and unconscious of his position, while his bloodless lips repeated over and over again the phrase, I'll find her, I'll find her. If it takes me all my life, I'll find her and I'll marry her. Like a man in a state of coma, he returned to his hotel in Bordeaux, and there, for the first time in his life, he drank himself into forgetfulness. End of chapter 10